welcoming us here. So thank you so much uh, from my family uh, to you. 2 Peter chapter 1 is our text this morning, verses 3 and 4. So let's give our attention now uh, to God's word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ through his word. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for your help now. Anytime we come to your word, Father, we stand in need of your spirit's help and illumination. We pray that you would give us grace, God, that we would understand the things you have revealed in the scriptures concerning yourself and your son and the gospel. Father, we pray that we would hold fast to the truth. We pray, Father, that our hearts would be encouraged. We pray, Father, that we would be admonished where we need to be and where we would be strengthened, Father, where we are weak. Oh, Lord, help me now to preach things that are faithful and true. Please keep me from error. Please grant your church discernment. We ask these things, Father, in Christ's name, confident that you hear us, for he is risen from the dead and reigning at your right hand. Amen. In 2009, the Christian Science Monitor published an article entitled, The Coming Evangelical Collapse. You don't have to guess as to the author's point. The challenges of, are, of secularism are so great, he claimed, that we are on the verge of an anti-Christian era in history. Ten years later, in 2019, The Atlantic published a piece entitled, Evangelical Has Lost Its Meaning. Again, you can anticipate the point. Evangelical is now a meaningless word, the author claimed, as commitment to the gospel is consistently undermined by a tide of social change. Even within the church, the voices warning Christians have been alarmingly blunt. The website Church Answers in 2017 ran an article entitled, Nine Changes We Must Make or Die. Are you hearing a theme here? For over a decade, the church has repeatedly heard these warnings of doom. Culture is changing so rapidly, we are told. And secular thought is advancing so steadily that if the church doesn't hurry to catch up, then we'll simply be left in the dust. What are we to make of these dire messages? How should we respond as Christians when we hear so many voices warning us that things don't look good for the church? Well, from the start, we ought to be honest that the challenges facing the church are great. Culture is changing, and now as much as ever, we need to think biblically 
as Christians and as churches. Now, as much as ever, we need the courage to stand upon truth like cities on a hill in the darkest of night. Honesty compels us to acknowledge that what lies ahead is difficult and to be prepared. But at the same time, we also ought to remember that we are not the first Christians to face uncertain times. The church has encountered seasons of turmoil before, and by God's grace, the church has not collapsed. The church has not died. Just the opposite, actually. The church has endured. The church has thrived. The question then is not how we need to hurry and catch up with the culture so we won't be left in the dust. The question is, how has the church stood firm in the past and how can we follow in that example today? That's the question. And that, friends, takes us to our text this morning in 2 Peter chapter 1. As you may know, Peter wrote this letter to churches facing persecution. In fact, it's quite likely that Peter himself lost his life to the persecution facing these believers. So you can think of this letter as a call to faithfulness. It's instruction in endurance, even when the world is raging. And in that sense, it's a very fitting passage for the church in 2021 to consider. And what makes this text so helpful is where Peter begins He does not begin by describing all the challenges lying ahead. He does not rattle off a list of nine strategic changes that we ought to make or else we'll die. No, Peter begins with the one thing that will anchor the church to the end. The one thing that will fortify believers to stand firm. It's there at the end of verse 2. What is this one thing that the church needs? You can see it there, verse 2. The knowledge of God And of Jesus our Lord. The knowledge of Christ, brothers and sisters, is the anchor for the church. The gospel is where we must stake our lives and ministry. That's actually my message to you this morning in one sentence. I'm not going to withhold anything. I'm just going to tell you everything up front. Here it is in one sentence. The knowledge of who Christ is and what he has done is sufficient. Sufficient to equip God's people for every good work in whatever season we face. The knowledge of Christ is sufficient for all that we need. So here's what I'd like us to do this morning. I'd like us to consider from the text three ways that the knowledge of Christ anchors a congregation in the truth. Three ways that knowing Christ is sufficient. Let me give them to you in advance that you can know where we're going. From verse 3, we'll consider the grace of knowing Christ. From verse 4, we'll see the promise of knowing Christ. And then we'll conclude with the place for knowing Christ. Grace, promise, and place. Let's consider each of those truths in turn. We'll start then in verse 3 with the grace of knowing Christ. The grace of knowing Christ. As we said a moment ago, perhaps the most important point to note about this passage is where Peter begins. If you look down at verse 5 in your copy of the scriptures, you'll see that Peter is about to give these believers a set of instructions, moral instructions 
for how they ought to live. He wants them to live in a certain way, a godly way. But strikingly, Peter doesn't begin with the instructions. He doesn't begin with verse 5 on what they must do. Rather, Peter begins with what God has done. Please don't miss this, friends. It's a very simple observation to start our study. Who is working in verse 3? Look there. Who is working? God is. God grants. And God calls. That's another way of saying that Peter begins with God's grace, with God's work and not ours. Believers don't come to know Christ through their own initiative, but through God's. It's foundational. Before Peter ever gets to what you and I have to do, he begins with what God has done. He begins with God's grace. But Peter doesn't simply mention God's grace and, and then move on. Now he lingers here for a moment in order to remind Christians how incredible God's grace is. This is a reminder we need, isn't it? Grace is one of those words that we like to use in church, but we rarely ever define. We don't spend enough time talking about what grace is. And, and that's where Peter helps us in verse 3. Notice the picture of God's grace that Peter paints for us in verse 3. First of all, Peter says that God's grace is sufficient. Look at the first line of verse 3, which is one of the sweeter statements in all of the New Testament. What has God done? Verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Friends, do you hear the note of sufficiency in that short phrase? What has God given to us? All things for life and godliness. Not some things, not most things, not many things, all things. Everything we need for the Christian life, God has given to us by His grace. It's sufficient. But the sufficiency continues. Notice that Peter says He's given us all things for life and godliness. That's a short way of saying that God has given us everything for this life and the next. The word life in verse 3 refers to eternal life with Christ and the new heavens and the new earth. It's future-oriented, in other words. But the word godliness is present-oriented. It refers to life in this age. As God is holy, so also He calls His people to be holy. And Peter's point is that God's grace gives us what we need for that calling. So do you hear the continued note of sufficiency? Whether it's eternal life in the future or a godly life in the present, God has given us all that we need for that life. His grace is sufficient. There's one more note of sufficiency before we move on. What's the source of God's granting us all things? Look again in your copy of God's word. What's the source? His divine power, Peter says. Now we can do some basic theological thinking here, can't we? What's the extent of God's power? It's infinite, right? God's power has no limits. He can do all His holy will. So make the connection with God's granting to us all things. If God's power is infinite, then what does that mean for His gift to us as believers? It means His gift is sufficient. If His power is infinite, what He grants is enough. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And since it flows from the very power of God in Christ Jesus, His grace is is sufficient. 
So I want you to mark it down, brothers and sisters. Whatever you need for life in the present and life eternal, God has provided to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't need the gospel plus something else. You need the gospel for life and for godliness. To say it a different way, to know Christ is to know the all-sufficient grace of God. Peter continues his picture of God's grace. And we learn that not only is God's grace sufficient, it's also effective. God's grace is effective. Look again at how Peter finishes verse 3. He begins with God's power, but then notice how that power is worked out. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Friends, Peter is referring here to the call of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Calling is one of Peter's favorite themes. If you read his two letters, it's one of his favorite themes, calling. What is a Christian, according to Peter? Answer, one who is called by the grace of God. It's one of his favorite things. 1 Peter chapter 1, for example, the apostle says we are called to be holy because the one who called us is holy. Or 1 Peter chapter 2, we exist to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So a Christian is one who is called by God's grace. And the point Peter makes here in verse 3 is that God's calling is effective. It's the outworking of God's power. Since the one who called us has all power, he can accomplish all that he intends. God's call is a summons, friends. It accomplishes what God wants. By his grace, God calls sinners to know Christ and then to live for his glory, and his call is effective. In fact, notice the end of verse 3, where Peter says we are called to his own glory and excellence. What does that mean? To be called to God's own glory and excellence. Well, God's glory refers to his divine nature, which has been revealed most clearly in Christ. And God's excellence is his divine character, his moral perfection. And that's the goal of God in the gospel. He calls sinners to salvation. And then he transforms sinners to display what he is like. To display his own glory and excellence. And that call is effective, friends, because it's the expression of God's power to bring glory to himself. Sufficient, effective. There's one final emphasis in verse 3 for God's grace. One final emphasis. It's focused entirely on the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice again what Peter says. God's gracious power has granted us all things through the knowledge of him who called us. Through the knowledge of God. That's where God's sufficient, effective grace is leading us to see and to know and to treasure the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the focus of God's redemptive work, His grace. It's leading believers to embrace the knowledge of who Christ is and what He has done. And this emphasis is built into the gospel. The gospel is not only a call to trust in Jesus. We must do that. The gospel is also a call to then know Christ, 
to press deeper into his glory and excellence and to see who he is. It's a fundamental principle in the Christian life. The more we see the glory of Christ, the more we live for the glory of Christ. To know Christ is to receive day by day the sufficient, effective grace of God. So I would simply ask you, friends, I love to ask questions of the church. I'll simply ask you, are you pressing deeper to know the Lord Jesus? Are you taking in God's word, aiming to grow in your knowledge of who he is and what he has done for you? The gospel is a call to trust Christ, but then a call also to know him and to know him more. Are you pressing deeper to know the Lord. That kind of pursuit is not merely head knowledge. It's grace, Peter says. It's the grace of knowing Christ. That brings us to the second way the knowledge of Christ anchors the church. From verse 4, we see the promise of knowing Christ. The promise of knowing Christ. When we come to know Christ by faith, God through his own glory and excellence, grants us his precious and very great promises, Peter tells us. His precious and very great promises. The idea here is that God's promises are of exceptional value. They're to be treasured. When Peter says they're precious promises, that's the same description that he used in 1 Peter to describe the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is precious, And so also are his promises in the gospel. They are valuable beyond measure. They're a treasure. Now here's an important question that we have to ask ourselves as we're studying. Why are these promises so precious? What makes them so valuable that Peter would put them first right at the start of his letter? Well, for one, the gospel's promises are precious because they are sure and certain. The promises of God in the gospel cannot fail. They will not disappoint you. They will never fall short of what God intends. Again, this is the outworking of God's power that we saw back in verse 3. Because God's power is infinite, His promises are certain. All that God has promised will be fulfilled. Not one promise will fail. Do you remember that wonderful scene at the end of the book of Joshua? I don't know how long it's been since you've read the book of Joshua. At the end of Joshua chapter 21, the people have conquered the land. They're there in the promised land. And the writer says, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made had failed. All came to pass. Friends, that's our heritage in the gospel, but to a much greater measure. The promises of God in the gospel will not fail because God cannot fail. God will finish the good work he has begun in his people. And so his promises are precious because they're sure and they're certain. I don't know what you brought into church with you this morning. Some of you may have come weighed down with the cares of life. Some of you may have even come wondering, is God for me? And friend, Peter would tell you that his promises are precious because they're sure and they're certain. 
And so if all that you can do on this Lord's Day is hold fast to what God says is true, even though they don't feel like they're true, if that's all you can do, then praise God. That's what the Bible calls faith. And it means God is working in your life. God's promises are precious because they're sure, but they're precious also because they reveal God to us. I want you to look back at the beginning of verse 4. Notice where Peter says, by which he has granted to us his precious promises. You see that? By which. What does by which refer to? I'm a grammar nerd, so sorry if I'm going to use the word antecedent. Um, I probably shouldn't. But what does the by which refer to? What's the reference? Well, look back just one clause. Look back just one phrase. It refers to God's own glory and excellence. By his own glory and excellence, God has given us these promises. Friends, this is why the gospel is precious. Because in the gospel, we see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. That's Peter's point. By his own glory and excellence is the same way as saying in the gospel, you see God. There is nowhere that we know God more fully than in the cross of Christ. There is nowhere that we see God more clearly than in the death and resurrection of Jesus. To have the gospel is to know the all-glorious, perfectly excellent God, and that's why these promises are precious. And friends, I want to press this home to you a bit more, because this is incredibly important for the church in our day to understand. This is arguably the fuel for sustained, joyful worship and ministry. The gospel's promises are precious not simply because of what God does for us in the promises. Rather, the gospel's promises are precious because in them we receive God himself. We receive by grace the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The promises are precious not just because of what God does, but because in them we receive God And we know him as father. This is why the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 can say that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all will also with his son graciously give us all things. All things? How can God promise us all things in the gospel? How can that promise be true? Because he's already given us his son And in giving us his son, he's given us the most precious reality in the universe. He's given us himself. We have God in all of his glory. And in having God, we have everything. And we lack nothing. Again, this is why the gospel's promises are precious. Because when we receive those promises, we receive God himself. Peter has another point to make as to why the promises are precious. They're certain, they reveal God to us, but the promises are also precious because they transform our lives. They change us. Notice the next phrase Peter uses uh, uses in verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Now what does that mean? To become a partaker of the divine nature. Well, clearly, Peter does not mean that we become 
little gods ourselves. Rather, Peter's point is that God's character, his holy nature, is now shared with us. To become a partaker in the divine nature is to be more like God and less like the old you. The promises of God in the gospel are active, in other words. They're powerful. They're present. They're working. They're the means through which God makes us more like his son. This is the doctrine of sanctification that Peter is teaching us here. God, by his grace, is presently making his people holy in life. He is transforming us so that our lives look less like our old selves and more like Jesus. Transformation takes time. At least it takes time in my life. It will last the entirety of our lives. We'll be battling sin until the Lord comes. But the good news, friends, is that the war is already won. The battle continues, but the war is won. That's a gospel promise. Christ has defeated sin, so our progress in holiness is secure. It's certain. On that great final day, when we stand before the Lord, God's work of grace will be complete. There will be no more sin because we will see Christ face to face. And in seeing him, we will be like him. And Peter's point here in verse 4 is that the reality of that finished work is already being realized today, right now, in the present. Notice the final phrase in verse 4. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. You should note the finality there, friends. The work has already begun. God has delivered us from the domain of sin and darkness, and that means our pursuit of holiness in this life is certain. Sanctification runs on grace, and that grace in turn fuels our effort. We strive for holiness because we have these precious and very great promises, promises of God's grace that cannot fail. So let's, let's sum up verse 4. Why are God's promises precious? Because they're certain, because they reveal God to us, and because they transform us to be like Christ. That's why the promises are precious. Here's the question we have left to answer before we move on. What exactly are these promises? Peter doesn't give us a list in chapter 1, but it's clear that he's thinking of the promises that are ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the promise of forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It's the promise of justification, a right standing with God. Romans 3.24, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And this brings the promise of peace. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's the promise of adoption into God's family. Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. It's the promise of eternal life, 1 John 5.11. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. 
Brothers and sisters, that's just a sampling. That's just a quick overview of what God has given to you in the gospel of Christ. The scriptures are full of gospel promises, and those promises are unshakably true. And so here's what I would say to the church in our day. No amount of cultural change or upheaval can stand against those gospel promises. God will not leave his church adrift. I'm going to say that again. God will not leave his church adrift. He has not left us adrift. He's given us this anchor, and it's the promise of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, as we come near the end of our time, there's one, there's one final point we need to consider in knowing Christ. This is the point that I hope brings things into focus and, and helps us look forward together. So let's conclude with this, the place for knowing Christ. We've considered the grace and the promise. Let's think just for a moment about the place for knowing Christ. Verse 3, we saw that God's grace called us to the Lord Jesus. That grace is sufficient and effective. Verse 4, God's given us his promises that speak to both our present and our future. Here at the end, I just want to ask one final question. Where exactly do we encounter this powerful grace of God? Where do we go in order to receive those promises and put them into practice? In other words, for a church, for a church, what is the place for knowing Christ? And the answer, brothers and sisters, is the word of God. It's the word of God. All the truth that Peter has described in verses 3 and 4 should lead us deeper in our commitment to the scriptures, to the inspired, inerrant, life-giving word of God. It should lead us deeper to the scriptures, Put the pieces together with me for a moment after we've thought about verses 3 and 4. Now let's just try to put some of those pieces together here at the end. Where is God's divine power found? It's found in God's word, applied by God's spirit. How do we tap into God's power for life and godliness? Only through the scriptures that reveal God to us and conform us more to the image of Christ. Where do we find these precious promises that are sure and certain and can't fail and transform us? Where do we find them? Only in the Bible, where the good news of the gospel is anticipated in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New Testament. Where do we go to overcome the corruption of sinful desire that still resides in all of us? We go to God's Word. Where do we take unbelievers to see that there is salvation from the world and the flesh and the devil? We take them to the Bible so that the Spirit of God will grant by His grace to give life to those who are dead in their sins. All that we need for life and godliness, God has graciously given to us, and His provision is found nowhere else than right here in God's Word. If you're only going to take home from today one thing, I want you to take home this. All that we need for God, for life and godliness, God has given to us, and He's given it to us, friends, in His Word. His inspired, inerrant, life-giving Word. Brothers and sisters, this, his word, is the place for knowing Christ. This, his word, is the place we go when the tide of cultural change is mounting. And it seems that the forces of this age might overwhelm, to, might overwhelm the church. We go to the one anchor, the one foundation that God has provided, the knowledge of Christ given to us 
in his word. And when we do this, when we stake our lives and our ministry on the scriptures, we can have confidence that God will keep us firm to the end. We can have confidence that whatever challenges arise, God will hold us fast. Not because we're capable in and of ourselves. Remember, Peter started with God and not with us. We can have confidence because of who Christ is and what he has done. And so, armed with God's word, we embrace the calling that Christ has given us to make disciples of all nations, beginning here in Fisherville and extending, God willing, to the very ends of the earth. This is the place for knowing Christ and God's word. Friends, the challenge for the church in our day is not to catch up with all the cultural changes that so many people predict will be our doom. That's not the challenge facing the church at all. No, the challenge facing the church is to do what the church has always done, which is to stand firm on what God has already given us in his word. All that we need for life and godliness, God has given to us in Christ and in his scriptures. And so, may we, by God's grace, do what God's people have done down through the ages, by grace through faith. May we stand firm with joy on God's all-sufficient, powerful, gracious, effective word. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful to you that the life of the church does not depend upon us, but upon you. We are grateful, God, that the progress of our Holiness does not rest on all the things that we might do, Father, but upon your grace, which does not fail. Father, we thank you that the certainty of eternal life rests upon not us, but you. And your word doesn't fail. Father, we confess that we are often far too quick to look at the things of the world and take our eyes off the unchanging anchor of your word. Would you humble us, God? And make us a people who continue and persist in standing firm upon the scriptures. Would you remind us, God, that all we need for life and godliness, you have already given to us by your grace, and that grace comes to us in your word. Help us, God. Help us to stand firm. And on the days when we don't seem to have much firmness in and of ourselves, remind us, Father, that our hope is in you and not in what we might do. We pray these things, Father, in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.